Welcome to the Applied Spectral Knowledge Podcast, where ocean insight experts share their tips and insights on your most pressing spectroscopy challenges. I'm your moderator, Dr. Yvette Matley, manager of the Ocean Lab Services and Tech Support Teams. This episode, we chat with Dr. Amy Bauer and Dr. Anne-Marie Dogallo about Raman spectroscopy. Amy and Annie have many years of Raman expertise between them, so who knows where the conversation's gonna go today. First, I'd like to introduce you to my esteemed colleagues. Amy is a relatively recent addition to Ocean with extensive expertise in both Raman and LIBS or laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy, if you're not familiar with the acronym. She has a PhD in physical chemistry and currently works with our engineering team as a principal application scientist to help guide their product development efforts. Annie has been with Ocean for four years and also has her PhD in physical chemistry. She helped develop and commercialize our SIRS or Surface Enhanced Raman Scattering products and currently works with our lab services team as a senior scientist performing feasibility studies and testing for our customers. Welcome, and thank you both for joining us today to share your expertise and insights on Raman spectroscopy. Let's get this discussion started. A really good place to start is going to be actually describing what Raman spectroscopy is. So for those who are new to Raman spectroscopy, Amy, would you please describe for us what Raman spectroscopy is? I'd be happy to, Yvette. Great. But first, I would like to tell you what Raman spectroscopy is not. In spite of its name, Raman spectroscopy has nothing at all to do with noodles. In, <laughs> in fact, Raman spectroscopy is named after Sir Chandrasekhara Venkata Raman, an Indian fellow who, who uh, won the Nobel Prize for the invention of Raman spectroscopy. I think it was in 1930. Raman was an amazing guy. He um, was out traveling the world in 1921, and he was absolutely stunned with the blue color of glaciers. And, and I also think the Mediterranean got him too, but he started to study light scattering at that time. And in spite of the, the, the brutal and, and simple tools that he had at the time, he discovered a type of vibrational spectroscopy that actually shows molecular bonding. And the way it's done nowadays is through the use of continuous wave, wave lasers. We'll talk about um, the wavelength of the exciting light here in a minute. The laser hits a surface and most of the light, as we know kind of intuitively, is scattered elastically. It goes out the same color it goes in and imagine your cat playing with the, the laser beam. <laughs> However, a, a very small amount of that light is scattered inelastically. And so it comes out at, at slightly different wavelengths or colors. And that depends on the vibrational structure of the chemicals that the laser hits. Each peak in a Raman spectrum corresponds to a, a given molecular uh, vibration so that we're looking at individual bonds like a carbon single single bonded to another carbon can uh, distinguish double bonds, also triple bonds, and that kind of thing. Um, benzene ring breathing mode is a beautiful feature. Uh, it's really great at looking for crystal lattice modes. All, however, geared around vibrational spectroscopy. 
anyone who actually works in the same office with me at Ocean knows that uh, the descriptions that you gave Amy in terms of the vibrational spectroscopy, I, you can't see them here on the podcast, which is a shame, but I'm always doing these bending and vibrational modes uh, to give an indication of what's going on with Raman spectroscopy. So uh, it's a great technique. And um, based on what, how, what you've described, Amy, in terms of the, it has to do with the bonds. I'm assuming this is a very specific technique that enables us to get a fingerprint kind of information? Oh, exactly. And and I have to dodge back and tell you how much I, I love the, the fact that you're a human normal modes demonstrator. I think that's, <laughs> that's critical in, in uh, getting people interested in chemistry, period. So so good, good on you, Yvette. Thank um, you. With respect to Raman spectroscopy providing a molecular fingerprint, um, a, a lot of people actually talk about it that way because Raman spectroscopy is, is used uh, in many cases to provide uh, an, identif an identification of an unknown compound so that any pure material has an absolutely unique Raman spectrum and it can be used to provide this, this gorgeous ID in, in cases where there's not uh, fluorescence in the way um, or uh, indeed when there's adequate signal level. But they are, it, it is very specific um, yeah. spectroscopy. It's I have found it amazing, and my favorite example is to look at the spectra for ortho, para, and met xylene, which have the exact same chemical formula, identical with respect to chemical formula, but you're just moving uh, one atom around this ring, and as a result, the Raman spectra are so different from one another. So I absolutely love Raman for the fingerprinting, absolutely. Another really good example of that is a use of, of Raman spectroscopy to uh, ID plastics. Um, ah, for recycling, right? For for recycling, uh, it's a it's a very good identifier. And the the reason there is is very similar, right? Polymer chains, uh, they're all CH, CC bonds for the most part. And the place where the um, the unsaturation occurs, it it drives the Raman spectrum to the point where you can tell the difference between two types of nylon. Wow. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing technique with respect to its specificity for sure. And one of the drawbacks that I know I've heard about Raman is, is sensitivity. So being able to look at trace levels. And we just so happen to have uh, on uh, here in our discussion today, uh, Annie with us, who has actually developed the SIRS products that we offer. Annie, can you tell us a little bit more about how SIRS can enhance the Raman signals and why we might be interested in using that? Sure. Um, so SIRS or surface enhanced Raman spectroscopy, it's a variant of Raman um, and it allows you to increase the Raman signals from molecules that may be attached to a metallic surface or a metallic nanoparticle. And usually it's gold or silver nanostructures that are um, anywhere from 10 to 100 nanometers in size, or you can use, like I said, a roughened metallic surface. And whenever the molecule is in very close contact, you will observe a much stronger um, Raman signal. Yeah. So if you're looking at really low concentrations of a certain analyte, you'd probably want to use SIRS rather than Raman because Raman really only is going to work on bulk samples. 
Ah, okay. Yeah, my understanding is that uh, only about one out of a million photons that you put into a sample is actually going to get Raman scattered. So I'm always amazed that standard Raman works at all with those kinds of odds. But now when you put these uh, the nanoparticles in there, we start to see that we can get a significant enhancement, right? Yes. Yeah. You can see anything from 10 to the fourth types of enhancements up to 10 to the 14th have been reported. <gasps> Wow. Okay. I want some of that. <laughs> That's yeah. terrific. Wow. Great. Amy, Amy, did you have anything to add about, about SIRS? Oh, no. I think Annie hit the nail right on the head. Okay. Terrific. Awesome. All right. Well, let's let's dive in a little bit more. Now that we know a little bit more about ramen and also SIRS, let's talk about uh, some of the questions that, that customers may have when they start out trying to take on ramen into their laboratories. One is that there's all these different wavelengths available for excitation. So you can use a 532 nanometer laser or a 785 nanometer laser or 1064 nanometer laser for excitation. And there, sometimes the customers are are not sure which one of these wavelengths should I use. Uh, Amy, do you want to talk a little bit about the different excitation wavelengths and which ones you think are going to be best for which type of samples? Sure. Uh, a priori, it's kind of hard to tell which is going to work the best. And and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, Raman signals scale uh, strongly with the wavelength of the excitation light. And it, it gets stronger with shorter excitation wavelength. So actually, there are people out there in the in the research communities who are who are even using uh, triple DAGs to to perform these analyses. So wow. way out there in two sixty six nanometer region. Oh my goodness! And so so you're asking yourself, okay, how come we don't we don't sell one of those, and why are they not um, popular in literature? Well. So at the very same time that the Raman signal is scaling, uh, scaling positively with decreased wavelength, also the principal problem that we encounter when we perform Raman spectroscopy is also scaling that way. And of course, I'm, I'm discussing our, our evil nemesis fluorescence. <laughs> As the wavelength of the exciting light goes down, the Raman signal increases, but then also so does fluorescence. And fluorescence can really overtake signals with uh, with the shorter wavelength lasers. And that's what really is driving the development of longer wavelength Raman systems with, with fairly bright, stable uh, semiconductor lasers. Ah, all right. So lar largely, largely people are using 785 and um, 1064 for samples that are um, they're worried about seeing fluorescence in like biological things or or soaps for example mm -hmm. does that make sense that absolutely and what what about 532 uh annie have you had any experience with the types of samples that are best measured with 532 nanometer excitation um, yeah well i can talk about it in terms of ramen and then also with sirs but um, yeah, like Amy mentioned, the fluorescence is kind of a concern when you're at 532. So you might not want to use uh, biological samples. Uh, like she mentioned, go with the longer wavelengths. But I've seen people use 532 with semiconductors, um, different polymers, minerals, um, things like that. 
And with regards to SIRS, um, if you're going to use uh, silver nanoparticles, then 532 is going to be your laser wavelength of choice because you have the best resonance conditions um, there with the silver nanoparticles. Okay, gotcha. Um, and then for the gold nanoparticles, just to kind of give everyone the, the whole picture with the, at least the particles that we offer here at Ocean, what wavelength do we use for those? Right, so we use 785 for the gold nanoparticles. Okay, great. So it, it sounds like in terms of standard ramen, uh, we know what's nice is if we're going with SIRS, then the excitation wavelength is going to be dictated by the nanoparticles that we're using. If we're doing standard ramen, then it sounds like 785 is uh, sort of a sweet spot that a lot of people have, have used because of that trade-off between the excitation wavelength and the intensity of the ramen spectra and also the intensity of the fluorescence. So um, would you guys say 785 is probably kind of the workhorse, Amy? I would say that. Although when when I was when I was listening to Annie, it, it occurred to me that the the folks who are doing research on graphene and carbon nanotubes really like 532 as well. Yes. And and so I would say that um, that that's sort of a special case where a 532 is uh, gets a special prize. <laughs> I, I have to say the first time I was able to measure uh, graphene, thin layer graphene, um, I was so excited to see the spectrum for something that I've been asked about so many times. And you're right, I was using a 532 nanometer excitation for that. So that's a that's a great range. We actually had um, a customer who was asking about looking at essential oils like clove, patchouli, nutmeg. Uh, any thoughts, Annie, on where what excitation wavelength would, might work best for those? Um, yeah, sorry, I don't know. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's okay. That's all right. Know. They're like essential oils. <laughs> oh, essential oils. Ooh, mm. yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I've mm. measured 785 of some oils. There can be some fluorescence, huh, when you're looking at, I know with the edible oils, olive oil and those kinds of things, we get a lot of fluorescence in there. Um, oh, okay. I haven't looked at essential oils either. Uh, how about you, Amy? Have you had a chance to look at essential oils? They specifically mentioned clove, patchouli, and nutmeg, but I think in general, uh, what might work well for those wavelengths? I, would I mean, be I'm sorry, what might work well for those samples? <laughs> I would be really worried about about 532 with these guys just just because they are they're a biological product essentially a botanical product and mm -hmm. very likely to have uh, have fluorescence in them. So they're, 785 or 1064 excitations in terms of the more standard wavelengths, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I would start with 785. Um, I I guess. I, I'm I'm eager to hear what Annie thinks about this too, but I I betcha I bet you a really good donut. In fact, <laughs> that um, that Raman is a is a great way to identify these things because you know some of them, some and not all of them have have that lovely benzene ring in in them. Yes. So I I think Raman is a would be a a, a real winner of a technique to to identify certainly the essential oils. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and there's also 633 or 638 mm -hmm. um, that could factor in there as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and 
I liked how we started out talking about this specific question, Amy, and you mentioned sometimes you just have to try it. And I can remember when I first started working with Raman spectroscopy, my background was primarily life sciences, UV vis absorbance. And I come across this Raman technique. I had the same questions. How do I know what wavelength to use? Do I know if there's a Raman signal? And I asked Raman experts like yourselves and they said, oh, you just have to try it. <laughs> so that that what saying that at the beginning was great because it made it put my mind at ease a bit thinking oh well I guess I don't have to be an expert on this to use it I just have to be willing to to try it out and see if it's going to give me what I need to give so that was a great comment um, at the beginning of this question can I, can I say something else about that absolutely so it's it's even trickier than that I I think so you gotta be willing to to go shop for the wavelength that works the best for your application to be sure. But another thing about the uh, about that is the fact that fluorescence is is really a, a strange and perhaps nonlinear function of excitation power. So there there can be situations where maybe you don't have the optimal uh, wavelength. Maybe you're just kind of stuck with what you have. Mm -hmm. But if you play around with the input power, you can you can op often optimize the Raman signal in the presence of of fluorescence such that you can use software to remove that background. Ah, yes. I had someone come to me in a trade show booth and give me a hard time over saying 532 has too much fluorescence. They said exactly that to me, Amy. They said well, you just need to correct for it. <laughs> so, so great point. Really great point. I think uh, in terms of the SIR substrates, Annie may have some input there as well because I've seen her in the lab adjusting and optimizing all of these different parameters to try and make sure that she's getting the best Raman spectra that she can. So, Annie, you want to talk a little bit about, uh, especially with respect to SIRS, uh, why it's important to adjust that laser power? Yes, so with respect to SIRS, it's important to adjust the laser power because the substrates are made out of quartz paper and they will burn if you use anything higher than about 15 to 20 milliwatts using our laser system. Okay, yeah, and I, I can raise my hand as someone who likes to burn samples with Raman spectroscopy. <laughs> yeah. So, sir, so substrates in my hands. That's why I'm so glad to have Annie nearby to help me make sure we get this right. And this really brings up to me another really important point in terms of uh, in terms of optimizing the setup. So it's not just a matter of throwing a vial into the setup and getting spectral data. There's a lot of optimization involved, right? And Annie, I'm going to throw this back to you because I know we've yeah. talked to, to many of our customers to help. Um, what are some of the key things I need to take into account when I'm getting ready to measure my sample? The focus is really important when you're doing a Raman measurement. The um, in the probes that we use have a focal distance of about 7.5 millimeters away from the end of the probe. And this is where the laser spot is um, going to be tightly focused and have the highest power density when it's um, when it's hitting your sample. And that's really critical because we want because higher laser powers will lead to more intense Raman signals. Um, so, but you have to be careful because you can damage samples during Raman, um, especially if you go in the lower wavelengths. So, uh, like you were saying, you have to kind of figure out what are going to be the best parameters for your sample. Is it solid? Is it liquid without damaging it? 
And um, with a search substrate, uh, like I had mentioned, you can't really go above that laser power of about 15 milliwatts. Um, when you're focusing the laser, you just also don't go above like 100 milliwatts on, on other types of substrates because you can damage the molecule or the analyte. Um, but with ramen, going through a vial, um, things that we've encountered and that other customers have encountered when it comes to focusing the laser is that they will focus the laser on the walls of the vial or the cuvette, and you'll see a really strong peak form around 13 and 1400 wave numbers. And um, so what you want to do is adjust the position of the probe um, with respect to the vial to make sure that you're focusing on your sample and minimizing that peak around 1,300, 1,400 wave numbers. Uh, good point. Yeah, yeah good tip. <laughs> it is. Excellent. Yeah, I, I that big giant peak all the time, uh, uh, people will go, oh, look at this. And you go, oh, I'm sorry, that's vial fluorescence. Like <laughs> you're seeing our vial signal. So um, yeah. that's a, a good point. And um, focusing definitely for me is one of the biggest challenges. Um, Amy, do you have some tips in terms of optimizing and getting your setup up and running? I think Annie did a really good job with that. <laughs> um, one, one thing that occurs to me, um, and this is probably related in many ways to the discussion of uh, focusing. So it, there is a, a, a terrible region between actually incinerating your sample and getting an, an appropriate Raman signal. And it's actually kind of hard to identify the, this just before burning um, set of conditions. And I wanted to have have people be sort of on the lookout for uh, a Raman spectrum that looks interesting, but doesn't stick around and you can't reproduce it because it's it's the Raman spectrum of the actual um, uh, burning process. Ah. And it's, so I haven't seen this a lot of times, but, but we were joking previously about um, uh, basically the fact that you're not a Raman spectroscopist unless you've lit in something on fire. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but there, there is this point where you actually seem to have a decent Raman spectrum with information in it, and then you can't reproduce it at the same, uh, at the same focal point and at the same, uh, on the same sample. And what that means is you just failed to notice that, that you uh, burned your sample away. <laughs> Yeah, there may not be smoke coming off of the sample, but it's still there. And I've actually had that experience many times where I get something that looks like a beautiful spectrum and then I can't ever repeat it. So that's good to know that there may be burning going on that I don't see smoke rising from or smell the flames coming off of that could be burning when we don't want the spectrum for the burn sample, right? We want to see the, the whole sample. So. Right. And, and, and actually... Oh, go ahead. Annie's recommendation... To start with conservative conditions, it, it, it should probably be set again right here. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, and I mean, even if you don't see uh, the burning, like you said, you, or smell it even, you can <laughs> um, you can see it in the spectrum. You can see the, the baseline just rising and rising, and you know that mm -hmm. you know something's not right. Um, but it's it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I recently read an article about SIRS and, and controlling the laser power. 
And they were talking about how if you are, aren't careful that you can induce photoreactions, which will change the molecule um, to the point that you, you see certain bands and they're maybe different than what you expected. Like you might see certain bands appear or shifts and things like that. And so you have to be really careful about uh, yeah, the laser power because you could misinterpret your spectra. So, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. very, very. So it sounds like focus is very important, and not burning your sample. So laser power. Yeah. So these are a, a couple of considerations, right? That that will help people get good Raman spectra. Mm -hmm. Okay, great, great advice, both of you. Appreciate that. Uh, let's see, what else do we want to talk about today? Oh, uh, this is a good one. As Raman spectroscopy becomes more and more accessible, so uh, there was a time just like spectrometers, everybody didn't have one in their lab like they do nowadays. Uh, having an instrument for doing Raman spectroscopy uh, meant you had to go to some institution somewhere and make the measurements. Nowadays, everybody, everybody has access to Raman and everybody's using it. And so I have gotten in trouble many times by telling people, oh, Raman doesn't work for everything. Um, and people, as I mentioned earlier, gasp and go, oh, how could you say that about Raman spectroscopy? Well, there are definitely some areas, right, where Raman spectroscopy is not going to be a good fit. Um, Amy, do you want to tell us a little bit about some areas where you think Raman is not necessarily a, a good fit? Well, it, to, to kind of um, head on uh, in, the, in the same factor we were, we were talking about before, um, Laser power on on absorptive materials is is a non-starter, and uh, <laughs> an, an, an interesting example of that is the fact that while Raman, in general, is really great for identifying plastics, it's really terrible at identifying plastics that have been loaded with carbon black. Uh, so mm -hmm. any black plastics, and and you you guys know from um, personal experience that your car is loaded with black plastic. Raman is, is miserable at identifying that. And in, in point of fact, the, the best sort of uh, result you can hope for is the, the double hump carbon black feature <laughs> and, uh, and an attempt uh, and strong attempts not to, not to burn the plastic, of course. So that, that would be the, the most tremendous failure I know of. Okay, that's a, that's a good one. The colored plastic. That's a good point. Yeah, Annie, what about you? Are there any samples that uh, I know? I all the time get the gold miners come to me and say, "Hey, can I detect gold with a handheld Raman system?" <laughs> <laughs> Annie has had to answer this one for me. So, uh, the any uh, additional comments on that, Annie, for our gold miners out there? Right. <laughs> so, from my understanding, yeah, most pure metals, um, there you're not going to get a Raman spectrum. Um, but like I said, it has to be pure. And um, some other samples that I've had difficulties with are very thin films with with our modular Raman systems. So they're difficult to measure if you um, don't have a microscope set up. So where you can really finely adjust the focus. So you can measure Raman of thin films, of course, but in my experience, they've been a little more difficult. And then anything that is low concentration is going to be challenging. Um, and especially if you have a low concentration analyte in a very complex matrix, like a biological fluid, like blood or saliva. Um, uh -huh. 
So those types of samples are going to be very challenging with ramen. How do they do with SIRS out of curiosity? Um, so low concentration samples are easy with SIRS, but in the complex matrices, um, you kind of have to do a little extra work to make it to make um, make it work. Okay. So they are definitely more challenging, but uh, there there are ways to to make it work. Okay, great. So it, it, it definitely. Ramen is a wonderful technique, but not the answer to everything. Um, and uh, there are, of course, ways to make modifications to the procedure. In some cases, I've seen uh, Annie and I attended the SIAX conference last year, and there was discussions about how to even make SIRS more specific. And so there are definitely ways to to improve the specificity and the detectability limits with Roman. So, yeah. um, but but it's not the answer to everything. So everyone can put their gasp away because <laughs> it doesn't work for everything, but it is a great technique in terms of the specificity uh, for sure. And then when you throw SIRS in, now you can get down to uh, very low detection limits, which is makes it a great technique. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's important though to, to distinguish between the, the two types of uh, Ram, uh, Ramon being unfriendly that that Annie just uh, mentioned. Yeah. So the first in the first case, there's a situation where there's no classic molecular bonds there to be seen. Okay. So right. so um, metals not pure metals not good with Ramon. Um, noble gases not good with Ramon. But most of the the other situations that Annie just referred to had to do with either um, a complicated mixture, which can in many cases be uh, be aided with uh, computer software, chemometrics, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of the thin film, um, careful sample preparation and presentation, which it, as as Annie so astutely said, um, in this case had to, had would be improved with a microscope. Mm -hmm. And that's really just to get that fine tune of the focus, I guess, to make sure you're looking at the thin layer and not the substrate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the I think the first my my graphene measurements, which were such a triumph for me, anyways. I was using a microscope type of setup, so yes, I I have seen the challenges sometimes at looking at a thin layer, and um, that's something that definitely we're looking into here at Ocean is finding a way to help to uh, make those types of measurements on thin layers. So stay tuned, more to come on that uh, somewhere down the road. Yeah. Um, while we're talking about samples, especially with what's going on right now um, with the pandemic and everything else, I wanted to see, Annie, if you could tell us a little bit about your work with SIRS, because now we're looking for very sensitive detection. Have you done any work looking at, uh, with the SIRS substrates, looking at viruses or bacteria or anything that gives us some hope that maybe um, we could apply these towards the pandemic that's going on now? Right, yeah, so there's a lot being done right now for Raman spectroscopy involved with COVID-19 detection, developing fast tests for that. Um, there's just a ton of literature out there, a ton of research being done, and I think there's a ton of potential. Um, with SIRS, uh, me personally, I've looked at non-pathogenic E. coli with our gold substrates. And we've been able to identify certain bands that um, uh, correspond to the um, the pathogen. Oh. 
And so we think that because of that, that there may be potential to measure something like COVID-19, a virus, although we haven't personally measured it yet. <laughs> okay. Well, and the size of the virus, we're expecting to be smaller than the bacteria. So maybe that will help with respect to the working with the nanoparticles? Yeah, it's definitely smaller than the bacteria. It's not as small as like the molecules that we study, but um, I've, from what I've seen in the literature of SIRS um, of uh, viruses, it looks very promising. All right. Well, that is good news. <laughs> good news for us how, all right now. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Amy, did you have anything to add? Oh, it, nothing other than how cool. Yeah. <laughs> def definitely not, not into the biological end of this stuff yet. I should also mention that we've had successful measurements in biological fluids such as blood um, where we've measured uh, um, pig's blood as well as human blood and been able to uh, measure certain small molecules or analytes in that using SIRS uh, with the gold nanoparticles. Oh, very cool. That's a complex matrix for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're dealing with blood. Well, this brings up another question, uh, quantification. How does quantification work, let's say, with the blood measurements? Were you able to quantify anything in that mixture, or did you just get this mess of a spectrum? All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we were actually able to quantify it. So, Excellent. We use the intensity of the one of the main Raman peaks for the analyte of interest that we're um, studying and use that to correspond it to the amount of the material present. So um, yeah, we, were able, we were able to get a good concentration curve from those measurements. Oh, that's great. Amy, what do you think about quantification using either standard Raman or SIRS? Well, I think it's it's very possible. The physics of the thing um, make the feature feature height or feature area scale linearly with concentration. Okay. Mm -hmm. So so that all works fine, um, especially if you're looking at uh, a, a simple measurement in a simple matrix like uh, let's say sulfate in water. That's a, that's a thing that I've done. Um, quantitatively pretty well. I think things things get messier in, in more complicated uh, matrices as, as Annie was saying, mm -hmm. just because there are, that there's no such thing as a, a clear unique feature for uh, to, to provide as a basis for that quantification. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it gets a whole lot more complicated there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yes. Well, and I, um, I, one of the talks I gave, I was showing data and I said, granted, this isn't a nice clean mixture of whatever the solvent was at the time. And yeah, what real world ramen is definitely challenging. Um, but I think it comes down to what you guys were discussing in terms of optimizing your setup and, and taking the time to make sure you're getting the best signals that you can from the sample. Okay, well, I want to thank both Annie and Amy for sharing their time and expertise with us today. Uh, I definitely have learned a lot about Raman spectroscopy. I've been making measurements for a few years, but it's always great to talk to the experts who are working with Raman setups and samples day in and day out. And what really came through to me is the specificity and the sensitivity of Raman, uh, especially when you're using the SIR substrates, is going to be a, a very impactful in terms of measuring my samples. And also, so that I need to spend the amount of time necessary to actually 
optimize and make sure I'm getting the best data. So thank you both for your information on that. And before we close the episode, I want to uh, let both Amy and Annie have a chance to share anything else they'd like to share with you before we sign off for this podcast. Amy, is there uh, any last minute tips or tricks that you'd like to share with the customers? Well, I, I guess for my final statement, I would like to say that Annie is my new hero. <laughs> and the reason Annie is my new hero is because of her work with SIRS and liquid SIRS in particular. Mm-hmm. And um, all of all of the um, fantasies, scientific fantasies that are that are present there and all of the applications that I continue to, to come up with um, having to do with liquid source. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Annie. You are awesome. Great, <laughs> <laughs> right, Annie. Yeah, what about oh, wow. you, Annie? Do you have anything to add? Oh, she's <laughs> take a moment. <laughs> Bask in the flow. Uh, and then if you have anything that you'd like to add, any last minute uh, tip or trick for the listeners that we have today. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you, Amy. That was very nice of you to say. Um, I guess one tip that I usually give people that are using our instrumentation with Raman uh, is to use um, the feature in Ocean View, our software known as Clean Peaks. Love so, paint. yeah, <laughs> it's it's good to use in certain cases. So. Um, it is an, a built-in algorithm in OceanView that can be applied to the raw Raman spectra, and it removes any baseline or fluorescence. So it helps snap the, peak, the peaks down to a flat baseline, which is really nice if you want to um, for presenting the data, and it just shows the peaks much cleaner without all that background noise. So. Um, I like to use clean peaks in addition to collecting the Raman spectra, so that's why I um, suggest to use it. And we actually have a tech tip on our website, I believe, about how to set this up in the schematic view in Ocean View. And um, yeah, so try clean peaks and see if it helps you. Excellent. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. That's yeah. that's. Great advice. And thank you both again for taking your valuable time and sharing all of your ramen expertise with our listeners. Uh, This is going to conclude episode two of the Applied Spectral Knowledge with Ocean Insight podcast. A big thank you again to our guests, Dr. Amy Bauer and Dr. Annie Delgallo. And I want to thank each of you for tuning in and being listeners to our podcast. I also wanted to give all of you a little job. Please reach out to Ocean via social media or our website to recommend topics and questions for future podcast episodes. This will enable you to to have some input into what we talk about uh, in each one of these episodes. So we look forward to hearing from you on that. And thank you again for joining the Applied Spectral Knowledge Podcast with Ocean Insight. Thank you. Have a great day.